0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast. At the moment, our Sydney team is actually in lockdown. So this episode is brought to you from our CEO, Mike Gore, and it's about lessons for the valley. It also touches on what it looks like to be resilient in suffering and what a diverse church that chases unity, not uniformity, looks like today. We're so excited for you to listen to this and remember to rate, review, and share this podcast and let us know what you thought of the content. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Open Doors Live podcast. Well, hello, everyone. It is great to be with you for this talk The Resilient Lessons for the Valley. The persecuted church, well, they're some of the greatest spiritual mentors you could ever want. People who by name have overcome the bonds of cultural oppression to remain courageously close to Jesus. And to be honest, in a world of rapidly changing religious freedoms, has it been a more important moment in history for us to learn what it means to courageously follow Jesus? It's one of the things I've always loved about Open Doors. And one of the things that makes it incredibly unique is that unlike most charities, Open Doors, well, we don't exist to end the cause for which we serve. In our case, the persecution of Christians. And the reason for this is that we believe persecution in many ways, it's a consequence of successful Christianity. That wherever the gospel is being shared, persecution will exist. Our job, it isn't to end it. In many ways, it's not even to stop it from growing. It's to give people the strength to stand in the face of it and shine as brightly as they can for Jesus, no matter the cost and no matter the location. And so today and together, we're going to learn from the persecuted church. Lessons for the valley. Those moments in life where everything seems to be against us and we're left questioning God's purpose and plan. One thing you'll find is that the persecuted church, well, they've got this unique ability to kind of push our idea of acceptable Christianity to its limits, and in doing so, time and time again, proves to the world that the true beauty of Christianity is the diversity of Christianity, and that unity, well, it should be never measured by uniformity. I remember meeting with a young mother in Palestine. We sat in a dimly lit room with no windows so as to protect her young family. And we listened as she told her story of conversion. Her name was Sally. She was from a Muslim background and had come to faith in her mid-teens. Her father, well, he was part of an extremist group, and Sally remembers, as she was growing up, often talking about jihad with her father and siblings. One day, a sister developed an eye problem, and the family, well, they couldn't afford the surgery. A local church offered to pay for the treatment. And her father, well, he was happy to take the money from the church, but he didn't want to hear anything about the gospel. When her father was not home, the members of the church would speak with Sally about Jesus and gave her a Bible. After several months of reading the Bible, Sally prayed a prayer one night. She said, God, I was a Muslim. I now need to be a Christian. And that night, she had a dream where her whole family were in heaven, waiting in line to see Jesus. Sally told us that in that moment, she felt warm and loved, and then there, on the spot, committed to following Jesus for the rest of her life. To this day, Sally hasn't yet told her family of her decision. As we spoke with Sally, she told us that when she was a Muslim, she would pray five times a day to a God who terrified her. But when she met Jesus, a God of grace who reached down to her, she prayed ten times a day. Sadly, after Sally was married and moved away from her family, she went to a church who told her to pray once a day. Sally said to me, Mike, how after a lifetime of seeking God, when I find him, can you not expect me to express it the only way? I know how. And that's what I love about the persecuted church. In the Middle East we're seeing a church emerge that pushes our idea of acceptable Christianity to its limits. People who place a prayer mat on the floor, they kneel facing Jerusalem and they pray five times a day. People who through the month of Ramadan, they fast for a whole month but in pursuit of Jesus. Under Quranic law people who have previously learned the Quran cover to cover, they now learn the Bible cover to to cover. They're bold and passionate evangelists, but without the extremism. And a church that is ultimately full of bold and courageous women like Sally. Over the last decade, we've all followed along as the war in Syria and Iraq claimed countless thousands of lives and I remember being in northern Iraq at the height of the war with ISIS. There were men, women and children arriving in their thousands on foot carrying the only possessions they were able to grab before being forced to leave their homes by ISIS. There were families sleeping in the street and makeshift shelters churches of all denominations coming together to care for and help in whatever way they could. As a side I will never forget and heartbreaking stories I will never fail to learn from or tell. One of the unspoken impacts of this war is that a generation of men have essentially been wiped out which means that the next generation of spiritual leaders in the Middle East will in large part be women, mothers, daughters and grandmothers. And you know what? The same is true for you. The society in so many ways is so often devalues the role that women play in the spiritual leadership and formation of the church, the role women have in shaping the church and those in their care. Well it's undeniable. Whether we're male or female we all have a purpose, a calling and a role to play in crafting, shaping, and building spiritual leaders. And my hope is today that these three simple lessons will help each of us walk that journey with strength, courage, humility, and grace. And so lesson one for the valley is a true passion is only found in suffering. Passion, it's one of the most used words in our Christian vocabulary, and probably one of the most misused words too. Because what I didn't realize was that the word passion, well, it actually finds its origin in the Latin word for suffering, which I guess means the passion, well, is not so much your enthusiasm for something you love, but more accurately your willingness to suffer for something you love. I mean, to not acknowledge the true foundation, the true origin of the word passion means we run the risk of watering it down to only positive outcomes, associating it with words like growth, increase, blessing, prosperity, excitement. And the impact that has on our faith, well, it's dramatic. Because when times of suffering come, and I promise you, they will come. Well, more often than not, our passion in God, our trust in God, our relationship with God, it's the first thing that suffers. I've spent a lot of time meeting with the persecuted church right across North Africa, China, and the Middle East. And one of the things that defines the persecuted church is their passion. There's their passion for God, their passion for life, their passion for people. And not in a cliched sense. I mean, these people are legitimately, genuinely, and absolutely passionate about serving God and seeing people one for Christ. A good friend of mine, Helen Bahane from Eritrea, was arrested when she was caught singing a gospel song on the steps of the church she attended. She was taken to the desert and placed inside a metal shipping container for two and a half years, what's incredible is that Christianity in her country—well, it wasn't illegal, but sharing Jesus was. I mean, you could be a Christian at home; you could read your Bible, you could pray, you could sing. You just couldn't share Him publicly. And to be honest, all Helen had to do to be released was sign a piece of paper saying that she wouldn't share Jesus with those around her. But she refused to sign. It. I remember sitting with Helen and asking her what must have been an incredibly insulting question: "Helen, if you're—if you could be a Christian at home, I mean, you could read, you could pray, you could sing—why on earth?" wouldn't you sign the piece of paper? And without missing a beat, she looked straight through me and said, because Jesus Christ is the medicine of the world and he must be shared. As my conversation with Helen went on, she started to talk to me about life inside the shipping container. She told me that the nights were so cold that you'd suffer hypothermia, the days so hot that you were, if you were unlucky enough to be on the outside of the the cramped group in this container and your skin touched the edge of the container, it would literally burn to the side of the container. In fact, Helen, She'll often wear a shawl that covers her shoulders and arms to mask the burns that line them. Ellen told me how when she was caught singing songs of praise to God, she would be stripped naked and forced to kneel on jagged rocks, holding heavy boulders, the weight of which would just drive her knees into the ground for hours at a time. How the guards, they would bring her water, but they would fill it with salt and spices so she would be left just as thirsty after drinking it. And how on one occasion she was shackled and chained, left outside in the desert for 30 days. Another time, Helen was caught sending notes of encouragement to fellow prisoners. She was stripped naked and taken to a courtyard in the very centre of the prison, with inside of all of the other containers so that everyone could see what was going to happen. The guards asked her, Helen, where is your Bible? She responded by saying, I don't have one. They asked her, is it in your head? And she said, yeah, it's in my head. The guards said to her, well, we're going to have to beat it out of you. They proceeded to beat Helen with a wooden bat and halfway through the beating, she stops and looks at the guard hitting her and says, I do not hate you, for you were just carrying out an order, but you need to know I am carrying out an order too, and that's not to deny Jesus, so carry on. I mean, after they were finished beating her, they simply grabbed her lifeless body, they threw her back into the container, and as she lay on the floor, she began to sing, thank you for the cold nights, thank you for the hot days, thank you for the bugs that bite my skin, thank you, Lord, thank you. Helen said to me, Mike, like driving a nail into wood, every beating, every blow, well, it drew me closer to God. She said, he suffered for me. So how can I not expect to suffer for him? Passion, a willingness to suffer for something you love. One of the most used words in our Christian circles and one of the most abused words too, the passion of the Christ. It all starts to make sense now, right? It was never about how excited Jesus could get for us. It was always about his willingness to suffer for something or someone he loved. Because remember, before you and I were passionate for him, he suffered because of his passion for you. Our lives, they'll be littered with moments of suffering, moments we get so caught up in looking at the pain that we fail to see the hand of God, and moments that if we're not careful, will leave us feeling abandoned and forgotten by God. Because the longer we measure our proximity to God based off His provision of safety, well, the further we'll find ourselves from a trust-filled, authentic and passionate faith. So let me ask you, are you willing to suffer for something you love? Lesson two. Suffering, it isn't the end of the last chapter. It's the beginning of the next. Suffering isn't the end of the last chapter. It's the beginning of the next. The world, it'll try and tell you that suffering in many ways is a betrayal of the gospel. Well, they're wrong. Suffering isn't a betrayal of the gospel, it's the essence of the gospel. A young Christian in Iran imprisoned for his faith told me, had he not been persecuted, the gospel would never have reached the prison. And to be honest, if we take a moment to think through the Great Commission, we read in Acts 8 and verse 1 that a great wave of persecution began sweeping over the church in Jerusalem and all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. It goes on and says, but the believers who were scattered, they preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. And you know what? I am sure that in that moment, people would have thought that this was the end that Saul was aggressively persecuting the church. I mean, Stephen had just been killed. But as we read above, it wasn't the end of what God was doing. It was the beginning. I received the following letter from a pastor imprisoned for his faith. And and I think it paints a beautiful and powerful picture of someone who realises that suffering, well, it rarely denotes the end of what God is doing, but rather the beginning. And he writes, My dearest wife, God by his holy will has prolonged my prison sentence i very much long for the day that i will be reunited with you my dear wife our children and god's people in the church my dear listen to me not only as a wife but also as a christian woman who has come to understand who god is and how deep and mysterious his ways are yes i love you i love the children and i would be loved to be free in order to serve god but in here in prison God has made me not only a sufferer for his name's sake in a prison of this world over which Christ has won victory, but also a prisoner of his indescribable love and grace. I am testing and experiencing the love and care of our Lord every day. He says to me, when they first brought me to this prison, I had thoughts which were contrary to what the Bible says. I thought the devil had prevailed over the church and over me. I thought the work of the gospel in Eritrea was over. But it did not take But one day for the Lord to show me that he is a sovereign God, that he is in control of all things, even here in prison. The moment I entered my cell, one of the prisoners called and said, "'Pastor, come over here. Everyone in this cell is unsaved. You are very much needed here.' And so on the same day I was put in prison, I carried on my spiritual work. "'My dear, the longer I stay in here, the more I love my Saviour and tell the people here about his goodness.' His grace is enabling me to overcome the coldness and the longing that I feel for you and for our children. Sometimes I ask myself, am I out of my mind, am I a fool? Well, isn't that what the apostle said? Whether I am of sound mind or out of my mind, I am Christ's. My most respected wife, I love you more than I can say. Please help the children understand that I am here as a prisoner of Christ for the greater cause of the gospel." Suffering, it isn't the end of the last chapter, it's the beginning of the next. And so my question to you is this, do you view your seasons of suffering as the end or as the beginning? Maybe you're in one of those seasons right now, so what would it look like, what would change if you were to view the season of suffering as the beginning of what God is doing, rather than the end of what He has done? Remember, suffering is not a betrayal of the Gospel. It's the essence of it. We have a God who identifies with us in suffering, who meets us in it, and who walks with us. Lesson three, grief and love. Grief and love. Grief, it's the most sacred of human emotion. For grief can only ever exist in the presence of love. If we did not love, we could not grieve. And while it may be expressed through sorrow, heartache, sadness, or anger, it is always and only ever driven by love. I really hope that's an encouragement for someone watching today, because there are seasons where we grieve, overwhelming heartache and sorrow, the deepest of valleys. But grief can only ever exist in the presence of love. In fact, if you did not love, you could not grieve. I'm a firm believer that God has a purpose and plan for each of our lives, and more than that, it's the journey that makes us great. But the journey? Well, it's full of valleys, heartache and loss. It's a weight that at times feels far too much to bear and in those moments, if we're not careful, we can get so focused in looking at the pain that we don't even realise that Jesus is right beside us every step of the way. Not in front commanding us, not even behind pushing us, but next to us. A position of empathy, of intimacy, of togetherness, whispering to us that he loves us, that he's proud of us, that he sees our pain, yet chooses to stay beside us for the whole Journey, grief, it's a sign of love. If we did not love, we could not grieve. And that makes grief, in my view, stunningly sacred. As we begin to close our time together, I want to encourage you that the future of faith, well, it rests on the shoulders of those who follow us, not those who have gone before us. And the faith, well, it's the only thing in life that grows stronger with age. I mean, think about it. We downsize our house, our income drops, health deteriorates, but faith, it does the opposite. It should burn brighter, grow stronger. And you know what, what lies beyond career? Well, the answer is legacy. To live a life defined by who you are, not what you do. Passing on faith and wisdom to those in your care, it's one of the most important roles you'll ever fulfill. Stop looking at the pain and lamenting the loss and start imparting wisdom and hope into those around you. If you're in a season of uncertainty, if you're over 55 and wondering what comes next, well, I really hope that that's an encouragement to you. But let me illustrate the point for you. In the ten years I've spent working with the persecuted church, there's one man who's impacted me more than any other. His name is Ozod and he's from Central Asia, a part of the world that I love. The stretches um, between Asia and the Middle East, where the remnants of communism collide with the rise of radical Islam, to make outworking the gospel extremely difficult and fraught with danger. Ozod is in his 70s, was a heavy drinker from age 10, smoked marijuana from age 11, and had what can only be described as a difficult childhood. He became one of the best jewelers in Central Asia, the wealth of which only fueled his addiction. He was a staunch Muslim. When I think of radical transformations, I think of Saul to Paul, and Ozod's transformation is really no different. Not only has he found faith in Jesus, he's one of the most instrumental leaders of the church in his country. In fact, he's so on fire for God that the secret police have rented the apartment next door to him as a way of monitoring his activities. And he's still married to a lovely woman who endured more than 10 years of physical and emotional abuse. And in a beautiful sort of completion to the story, is now co-leading his ministry in Central Asia. I was sitting in a secret church with Ozod, the church of which he is a senior pastor. Now in his country, it's illegal to teach the gospel to anyone under the age of 16. In fact, being caught with a children's coloring sheet that has a Bible verse on it, can see you charged with religious extremism and sentenced to three years in prison alongside those charged with terrorism. As the service progressed, I noticed that Ozod, well, well, he didn't seem to be leading us. I didn't think too much of it at the time. And then after the worship, I noticed Ozod stood up and gathered the children and left. I asked him about this later and he said, Mike, it's easy to become a master when you're a servant, but to become a servant when you're a master, that's almost impossible. It's what makes Jesus so beautiful. Ozod said, I've stepped down from leading the church to run the children's ministry because if anyone's going to go to jail, it's me. He said, in the West, you too often look at kids' ministry as a glorified babysitting service, but I believe it's the single greatest investment you can make into the future of faith in any country. He said, I'll go to jail for that every day of the week. The future of faith, that rests on the shoulders of those who follow us, not those who have gone before us. And I really hope that that's an encouragement to anyone today who's in kids ministry, teaching, parent, or even grandparent. But here's the thing, Ozod, he only came to faith 10 years ago, in his late 50s or early 60s. Yet his influence for the gospel in his nation will impact generations to come. Faith, it truly is the only thing in life that should grow stronger and burn brighter with age. It's one of the reasons at Open Doors we ask people to support the persecuted church financially. It's really not about the money. It's about asking you to invest into the future of faith and ensure the survival of the church in some of the most conflicted countries on the planet. It's about uniting the global body of Christ by asking you to use your financial freedom to help the gospel continue advancing, all the while capturing, learning from, and using the stories of the persecuted church to strengthen and embolden each of us to keep following Jesus no matter the cost. And remember, passion is best defined as your willingness to suffer for something you love. Suffering is not a betrayal of the gospel, but rather the essence of it. The suffering, it rarely denotes the end of the last chapter and more often than not, the beginning of the next chapter. And the grief will always be part of the journey, but it can only ever exist in the presence of love. That even in the middle of the deepest Darkest valley, we have a savior who chose a position of intimacy and empathy walking beside us. Or, as one of our team in Ethiopia said, the only church, the only body of believers I know is the one of the Bible. It's persecuted. When we practice our faith to the extreme, persecution will come. In fact, there's only one sort of group of believers that springs up when faith is practiced to its fullest. They're always persecuted. If we're not being persecuted, we shouldn't thank God for safety. We should question ourselves because we aren't living our faith to its fullest. Faith and persecution are inseparable until Christ returns or the world comes to know him. God bless. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast with your hosts, Mike Gore and Jocelyn Goddow. I'm your producer, Beth, and we'll catch you next month.